Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the GlobalX Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Battleground 44 series, where we analyse the events of the Second World War as they unfolded 80 years ago. Today, we're looking at the Pacific Theatre, where, of course, many Americans were focused after the traumatic events of the surprise Japanese attack on the US fleet at Pearl Harbor on the 7th of December 1941, the event that brought the country into the war. Their government, on the other hand, agreed with Britain that the Allies' strategy needed to be Germany first, that is, to defeat Germany and Italy in Europe first, before turning to deal with Japan. Saul, why did they agree to that? Well, it seems the strategy was urged on the US President Franklin D. Roosevelt, or FDR as he was known, in November 1940, that's a full year before the US enters the war, by Admiral Harold R. Stark, the Chief of Naval Operations, who argued at the time that without the deployment of American military force in Europe, Britain was doomed to defeat. The defeat of Nazi Germany was, therefore, to take precedence over any threat that might arise from Japan. The policy, I should say, was supported by Admiral Ernest J. King, the commander-in-chief of the US fleet, who felt, along with the other joint chiefs, that Hitler's defeat would inevitably be followed by the demise of the other Axis powers, Italy and Japan. Conquering Japan, on the other hand, would have little bearing on Germany's military prospects, particularly its titanic struggle with Russia. Yet King was also aware that Japan could not be left to run amok. To prevent this, at least some of the Allies' resources, particularly naval, were needed in the Pacific. So the question was, as we go through the war, Patrick, how big a share was needed for the Pacific? Now, King suggests 30% at the Casablanca conference in January 1943. But even this modest amount was too much for Field Marshal Sir Alan Brooke, Britain's Chief of Imperial General Staff, who envisaged and I quote, minimum holding operations in the Pacific while the war was won in Europe. Now, you might say the British were bound to say that because, of course, their existential threat was in Europe. 
Roosevelt and the Joint Chiefs, even so, never seriously deviated from the Germany First strategy. But it is worth mentioning that both King and General George Marshall, the US Army Chief of Staff, were prepared to consider a shift to a Pacific First strategy when Britain persisted in its refusal to consider a cross-channel invasion in 1942 and argued instead for an invasion of French North Africa. They were ultimately stymied by President Roosevelt, who backed British plans on the grounds that a North African invasion was better than no action at all in the European theatre, and I think he was right to do so. Okay, uh, before we get to uh, the events of 80 years ago, the events of 1944, it might be worth revisiting what's happened uh, in the Pacific before that date. And I'd also like you sort of to consider, we often, we like doing these uh, counterfactual things. What would have happened if Japan had decided instead of steaming off down the Pacific Islands and into Southeast Asia, had instead swung north and attacked Russia, or attacked Soviet, the Soviet empire, should I say, from the rear, moving into Siberia, which would have forced the Russians to fight a war on two fronts, would have greatly benefited their allies, the Germans. Yeah, great question, Patrick. And I, I think as any any student of Japan in the 30s and early 1940s knows, there was a big split in its military between which direction they were going to go in. The Navy, of course, wanted to go south and into the Pacific, and the Army wanted to go north and deal with their, you know, what they considered to be their big long-term threat. And that that was Russia. And I don't think there's any doubt in my mind, Patrick, that if they had gone north, and remember, this is six months after the German invasion of Russia, it would have almost certainly led to the defeat of Russia. And that, of course, would have had serious consequences for the UK too. So it's very fortunate they didn't go that way. Although initially, as I'm about to explain, things went very badly for the Allies in the Pacific anyway. Initially, it was disaster, as I'm suggesting, all the way for the Americans. The attack on Pearl Harbor, which sinks four American battleships, seriously damages one and inflicts minor damage on another three. So pretty much knocks out the battleship ship fleet at that stage, but doesn't crucially get any aircraft carriers. But after that attack, things go from bad to worse as successive Japanese amphibious operations capture Guam, Wake Island, and in May 1942, after a five-month campaign that led to the death or imprisonment of around 70,000 US and Filipino troops. The Philippines, which of course is where MacArthur was, and we'll come on to him, I'm sure. Elsewhere, Japanese forces are threatened through British and Dutch positions in Southeast Asia, Hong Kong falls on Christmas Day, 1941. Singapore, the southern tip of the Malayan Peninsula, on 15 February, 1942, with the loss of its 85,000-strong garrison. Churchill was absolutely horrified and suggested that the defenders should have done better. Rangoon, the capital of Burma, falls on the 7th of March, and Dutch forces surrender on Java, the main island in the Dutch East Indies, a day later. So it's been an absolute litany of disastrous news. The Japanese in that time had killed approximately 65,000 Allied servicemen while losing only 15,000 of their own, and over 300,000 Allied personnel were prisoners of war. The Imperial Japanese Empire at this point just a few months into 1942, now stretched across seven time zones and contained 516 million people, more than the 360 million under Hitler's control at the height of Nazi Germany's military successes. Astonishing statistics, aren't they? Yeah, it is. That really puts it into some sort of perspective, doesn't it? I don't think we really, from our kind of rather Western uh, perspective, get just how staggering uh, that initial onslaught was in terms of these rapid and I think even surprising to the Japanese successes, you know, starting with Pearl Harbor, where the 
U.S. Navy was and Air Forces on Pearl Harbor and in the area were completely really caught with their pants down. Anyway, before we get on to how the tide was turned and the significance of 1944, I'd just like to um, get something from you about the commanders. You know, the very colourful bunch uh, led by uh, MacArthur and Admiral William Halsey, known as Bull Halsey, always MacArthur of course, was the commander of United States Army forces in the Far East, and Halsey was commander of the South Pacific area. They're giant personalities, aren't they? MacArthur, the American Caesar, as his biography, William Manchester, called him, and Bull Halsey, a brilliant phrase maker. I think we all remember that story, don't they? When a a newspaper man asked him what uh, his strategy was for victory, he replied, kill Japs, kill Japs, keep on killing Japs, knowing that it would resonate well at home. It sounds pretty crude, doesn't it, to our ears now, but that was then, and it went down a storm. He was also um, greatly admired, I think, uh, for his empathy with his men. A lot of people wrote to him, and he, he made made sure that everyone who sent him a letter got a reply. Sometimes he even wrote the letters himself. So, um, yeah, if you could start off just by saying something about them and then telling us more about that hinge period at the beginning of 1944. Well, MacArthur um, had been in the Philippines for a fair while, actually. I mean, he'd been there in the 1930s. He was a former uh, chief of general staff, U.S. Army chief of staff. So, you know, he's been right at the top of the U.S. Army. But all the way through this, you begin to realize that MacArthur's probably got political ambitions, ultimately in the U.S., but certainly to have an effect, not just to control uh, bits of territory in the Pacific, but also to have political authority too. And that's probably what he was aiming for in the Philippines. It all goes horribly wrong, as I've just explained, uh, in the early 1942. And from that point onwards, MacArthur is absolutely determined to get back to the Philippines. So when I talk a little bit about how the strategy unfolds, the listeners need to keep in mind that MacArthur is always going to be pushing for a strategy that will ultimately lead to the liberation of Philippines. So there was a big debate about this at one stage. You know, the idea is, no, we can just leave the Philippines behind. Let's get to Japan as quickly as possible. And MacArthur wasn't having any of it because he felt he owed it to the uh, Filipino people, but also to his own personal ambitions, frankly, as the man who lost the Philippines. He wanted to become the man who gained him. So, yes, I mean, of course, he's sitting in exile, isn't he, in Australia after being uh, being kicked out? And what's his famous phrase that he announces to the world in his determination? Yeah, it's 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 an early version of the Terminator, Patrick. I will be back. I mean, I shall return. I think he says this repeatedly, and ultimately, he was determined to do that. Okay, well, take us through the events that actually turn the tide. Then it's all. Okay, well, it's long and involved, needless to say. I'll try and I'll try and skip through it as quickly as possible. I mean, first of all, you've got two naval clashes which begin to turn the tide. Coral Sea, which wasn't really an American victory. It was a sort of draw, if anything. But it did stop the Japanese in their intention of getting to Port Moresby on the south coast of New Guinea. And given that that is just a few hundred miles from the northern tip of Australia, you can see that it's a crucial moment. So they're pushed back there. But then the much more significant victory at Midway, hard fought, even fortunate some would say, naval victory for the Americans. And American aircraft carriers are the way you project power at this stage of the war. Battleships are nowhere near as effective. They sink for for only the loss of one of their own. And as Churchill says, at one stroke, 
the dominant position of Japan in the Pacific was reversed. The glaring ascendancy of the enemy, which had frustrated our combined endeavours throughout the Far East for six months, was gone forever. From this moment, all our thoughts turned with sober confidence to the offensive. So what date are we talking about there then, Saul? And that's the summer of 1942. So it's it's turned around quite quickly. You've had all these advances up to May 1942, and then you've got Coral Sea in that month, and then you've also got a month later the great victory at Midway. So it's turned around quite quickly, but it hasn't turned around quite as much as Churchill suggested. So after Midway, just two months later, you get to the first kind of clawing back of territory uh, with the invasion of the Japanese-held island of Guadalcanal in the Solomon Islands. This is the first serious US ground offensive of the war. And you write about this, don't you, in your Devil Dogs book about the men of the 1st Marine Division fighting their way through the Pacific. It was a pretty gruesome campaign, wasn't it? It was a horrendous campaign. It lasted for six months, cost the Japanese 30,000 dead. Uh, Even US casualties were horrendous. 1,716 Marines and soldiers killed, but 4,911 sailors and 420 airmen. So that's 7,000 in a single campaign. It's one of the costliest campaigns of the of the Second World War for the Americans and one of their costliest in their history. But for US Army Chief of Staff uh, Marshall, it was uh, worth it. In the end, he, he said at the time it marked the turning point in the Pacific thanks to the resolute defense of these Marines and the desperate gallantry of our naval task forces. So why did it matter? Well, the capture of Guadalcanal and the Papuan Peninsula, which was happening alongside it, and this was a campaign commanded by MacArthur, they, interesting enough, were essentially defensive operations in that they were trying to stop the Japanese, as I've alluded to with the Port Moresby uh, and the Coral Sea battle, from getting to Australia and New Zealand. But by early 1943, and this is the important broad point, with both campaigns drawing to a successful conclusion, plans are put in place for a coordinated advance up New Guinea and the Solomons towards the Japanese stronghold of Rabaul on New Britain in the Bismarck Archipelago. The move uh, was endorsed in January 1943 by the Anglo-American Conference at Casablanca, where it was also agreed that US naval forces would advance west through the Gilbert and Marshall Islands in the Central Pacific towards Truk and the Marianas. So in effect, Patrick, by the beginning of 1943, you've got these two axes of advance heading towards Japan. One is going to go if MacArthur has his way through the Philippines, and the other is going to go through the Central Pacific. Yeah, you really need your atlas out in front of you when when we're talking about this. So, okay, I think I've got that. I've grasped that. You've got one axis of advance heading up New Guinea, as you say, and the Solomons towards Rabaul. But what's going on in the Central Pacific at this point? Well, uh, just a quick aside, actually, because there's some lovely little vignettes through all of this and some, you know, an interesting name recognition too. Um, One of the actions that takes place by Bull Halsey, who you mentioned before, he's commanding this action against New Georgia. So this is the accent that's going through the Solomons and also through New Guinea towards Rabaul, which is the huge uh, Japanese naval base. Well, in that action on New Guinea, there's a very famous incident with a, a torpedo boat called PT-109. Now, this is commanded by young Lieutenant John F. Kennedy, JFK, as he became. The boat is run down by a Japanese destroyer. Well, Kennedy helped the survivors swim to a nearby island thus cementing his post-war reputation as a war hero and underpinning his eventual uh, rise to the presidency. So there were significant moments during all of this fighting. 
But to go back to your question, what was happening in the Central Pacific? Well, that was the responsibility of arguably the finest American naval commander of the war. And I don't mean Halsey, I mean Admiral Chester Nimitz. His intention, unlike MacArthur's, was to island hop to Japan by the shortest route. And crucially, he was backed by a powerful aircraft carrier force, meaning he didn't need to capture airfields as he went. Uh, In other words, he, you know, the strategy was entirely different. And he was targeting places like to Rawa in the Gilbert Islands, uh, where he landed the 2nd Marine Division on the 20th of November 1943. And this was an absolutely brutal battle. Tough Japanese defences, bunkers built from concrete and palm logs, and an offshore reef which held up the landing craft. And this resulted in 1,500 American casualties of the 5,000 put ashore. The battle finishes at the end of the third day, so it's reasonably quick with a suicide banzai charge by the remaining Japanese. But at that point, or to that point, 4,800 defenders had perished. That's dead, leaving only one officer and 16 soldiers and 129 Korean laborers to surrender. The Japanese had killed in turn 1,000 Americans and wounded another 2,000. This was a real shock to the American system. It was an utter bloodbath uh, reported in all the papers uh, caused you know a real reaction back home and I think in in a positive sense it prompted many improvements for future operations that included underwater demolition teams the sort of forerunners of the US Navy seals more heavily armored Amtraks to land troops and a rethink about communications and intelligence well that's very graphic stuff uh, thank you for that Saul okay that's enough of part one do join us after the break when we will consider the options in the Pacific open to the Allies at the start of 1944. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. In part one, we cover the Pacific War up to the end of 1943, with Nimitz's forces having just captured Tarawa in the Gilbert Islands at great cost, and MacArthur's men about to invade New Britain in the Bismarck Archipelago. So what happened next, Saul? 
Well, it happens just before the end of 1943, in fact, Patrick. The 1st Marine Division invades New Britain, as you say. Um, it does it on Boxing Day, 1943. But instead of trying to capture the strongly held air and naval base of Rabaul on the eastern side of this huge 370-mile-long island, an island, by the way, that was the biggest the Americans attacked during the whole of the war, until they get to Japan, that is, and they don't actually invade Japan, apart from the Philippines. So it's an absolutely massive island. Well, they decide very sensibly, I think, ultimately to bypass Rabaul and target smaller airfields on the western side of the island at Cape Gloucester. So that's completely the opposite end of the island. Well, the landings by the 1st Marine Division are initially unopposed, but the invaders, as is so often on these island battles, quickly run into difficulties as terrain, weather and stiffening opposition all take their toll. The island, the Marines discovered, was hot and humid with a rainforest jungle that was typical of the Pacific tropics. Giant trees towering up to 200 feet in the air above dense undergrowth lashed together by savage vines as thick as a man's arm and many times as tough. That's from the classic 1st Marine Division account of this campaign, the old breed. There were two seasons, uh, apparently, wet and less wet, with the monsoon <laughs> generally beginning in mid-December, a detail not sufficiently noted by the planners. Now, in my book, Devil Dogs, I follow a single company of infantry, K Company, 3-5th Marines, as it fought its way from Guadalcanal to Okinawa. Now, at Cape Gloucester, they fight two vicious battles, relatively unknown battles, to extend the beachhead and push the Japanese back as far as a, a piece of high ground known as Agery Ridge, a jungle rise hidden by dense foliage. The first battle was to get across a jungle watercourse known as Suicide Creek, the second an assault on the ridge itself. Now, in crossing the creek, K Company lost one officer and 44 men, seven killed and 38 wounded. And that's almost a quarter of its total strength. And it's only really just starting the campaign. In the end, wrote a sergeant, we made it across and cleared the enemy, but we paid a dear price. By the time we were across, the waters of Suicide Creek ran red. Wow. Okay. So they're across the creek. How difficult was it to take the ridge? Well, it was very tough. The ridge was covered in jungle, and all along its crest and sprinkled over its steep face, the Japanese had constructed an elaborate network of camouflage bunkers and machine gun emplacements. There was no approach that wasn't covered. They'd even dug positions on the reverse slope, which sloped down into a small valley, and on a ridge to the rear, from where they could provide covering fire. Now, it was from this formidable position, manned by a battalion of veteran troops, that the Japanese poured a hail of mortar, machine gun, and rifle fire on the reduced K Company as it moved forward. The attack begins on the 8th of January and continues the following day, with the forward troops eventually reaching a point just below the crest of the ridge where they dug in. And this was just as light was beginning to fail on the 9th of January. To protect this position, a 37mm anti-tank gun was man-handled up the slope by volunteers who included the 30-year-old battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Silent Lou Walt, as he was known. A Marine remembered, we took turns, five or six of us at a time, wrestling that rascal up the hill in the mud. I pushed part of the way, slipping and sliding, by and snatching at my boots. As a reward, they let me fire it. Well, that night, the Japanese launched no fewer than five Banzai attacks, that's all-out infantry attacks, to recapture the ridge. They were attacking on a front of just 100 yards, and the first charge got within yards of the anti-tank gun before it was stopped. Yeah, say something about these Banzai attacks. I mean, they're really just basically trying to overwhelm the defenders or the attackers in this case, aren't they? But do they ever actually succeed, or did they succeed here at all? 
Well, there's a famous incident on uh, the island of Saipan in 1944. So we move forward a few months in, in the year in which a, a Banzai attack is incredibly successful. It overruns a whole battalion and a half of American troops and, and leads to the divisional commander getting the sack. But generally speaking, once the uh, American Marines and American soldiers realized that the Japanese were likely to do this, they just dug in and waited for them to come and mowed them down. So Overall, they were incredibly ineffective. I mean, this is all part of the sort of Japanese tactic of aggression. As long as you make enough noise, Patrick, you're going to cause American soldiers to, they felt, kind of break and run. They completely underestimated the metal of some of these young U.S. Marines and U.S. servicemen who had, of course, been brought up in the 1930s. These were working class guys from across America, and they were pretty tough themselves. And they adapted very effectively, ultimately, to conditions in the Pacific. And they mowed down the Japanese in their hundreds. So what did the Japanese do? Well, ultimately, they changed tactics, as we might come on to in a later episode this year, when we talk about the Battle of Peleliu, where they've completely pivoted from these mad attacks soon after the Americans land to a much more considered deep defense in very carefully constructed positions, which were ultimately going to take a a serious toll on the Americans. So to get back to this battle, Saul, how close did the Japanese come to actually uh, driving the Americans back? Well, you know, within an ace, uh, if truth be told. And and the question is, if they hadn't got that 37 millimeter gun up there, which they were effectively firing over open sites, would they have actually succeeded? Almost certainly yet. I mean, the fourth assault, which was the most violent yet, pierced the Marines line with some Japanese soldiers actually reaching the command post. Uh, that's the company command post before they were driven off. A Japanese major and two other officers got almost as far as Walt's foxhole. So he's the battalion commander, but he's right up with the troops. He helped push the gun up the hill, as I've already pointed out. And his foxhole was just 50 yards behind the front line. Well, their charge was stopped, according to Walt, by shrapnel from two short American 105 millimeter shells that burst in a tall tree overhead and fortuitously (laughs) killing these guys. The major, recalled Walt, actually died three paces from where he was crouching uh, with his 45 pistol in his hand. He was about 50 years old, that is the Japanese major, of medium build and holding a sword in one hand and a pistol in the other. Yeah, so uh, resupply uh, in these conditions must have been pretty difficult. Did they come close to running out of ammunition at, at this point? Yeah, they did. It's it's a sort of Isanwana type scenario. It's all very well holding the you know the perimeter, as it were, but you've got to get ammunition up there. And the big uh, problem all the way through this fight is it's night. It's really difficult to see what's going on. There are bullets flying and shells landing, and the resupply was absolutely crucial. Well, this final resupply uh, got there just minutes before the Japanese launched their fifth and final Banzai charge. And if they hadn't managed to resupply at that point, with most of the guys in the in the forward positions out of ammunition, uh, they would undoubtedly have been swept off. Well, this final attack was launched by a full company of Japanese troops, all veterans, apparently of the fighting on Bataan. And Walt because he knew that this was likely to succeed, instructed his forward artillery observer to call down fire at successively reduced ranges until the 105 millimeter support rounds were hitting just 50 yards in front of his lines. And inevitably, Patrick, some of these rounds fell short. But the good news is the overall effect was to break up the Japanese assault. The following morning, as dawn broke, 
The glassy-eyed and exhausted Marines move forward to secure the whole ridge, mopping up pockets of resistance as they go. The capture of what came to be known as Waltz Ridge was, in my view, one of the great military feats of the Pacific War. Waltz's extraordinary heroism was recognised by the award of a Navy Cross, as were some of the uh, members of K Company, but it might easily have been the Medal of Honour, which is their top award, their VC, and it probably should have been. Pretty stirring stuff. So uh, when did the New Britain campaign end then? Well, this was the key uh, bit of fighting in the first week or two, but it actually drags on like so many of these islands campaigns did for another few months. It wasn't until May that the 1st Marine Division is pulled out of New Britain, by which time, in fact, the uh, the troops have actually fought their way halfway across the island, but they're not going all the way to Rabaul, as I've already mentioned. They're relieved by the US Army's 40th Division, And their next task is to take part in Operation Stalemate, which is the capture of the Palau Islands, including Peleliu, which is Japan's main bastion in the Western Caroline Islands. But that's a story for another day. So what's happening elsewhere at this point? What's happening in the rest of the theatre? Well, as I've said before, Patrick, you've got these two uh, axes heading towards New Britain. They've now got there. So now, although you had two axes heading towards New Britain, now you've got a single axis, which is under MacArthur, which is going to be moving on towards the Philippines. Meanwhile, in the Central Pacific, Nimitz's forces have ousted the Japanese from the Gilbert and Marshall Islands, including Tarawa, as I've already explained, Kwajalein and Eniwetok in a hard-fought campaign that rages from November 1943 to February 1944. His next objective is significant. It's to capture the Mariana Islands, and they're much closer to Japan. They will provide airfields from which the revolutionary new B-29 Superfortress bomber, developed, by the way, at a cost of $3 billion, which was more than they spent on developing atomic weapons, and capable of flying 1,600 miles at high altitude out of the reach of enemy fighters, uh, and therefore had the ability to strike at Japanese cities and industry. The decision to assault the Marianas had been confirmed by the Combined Chiefs at the Cairo Conference in November 1943, but MacArthur, as I've mentioned, still hoped to bend Nimitz's line of advance towards his own theatre, where he hoped to consolidate all available forces for the capture of Mindanao, the most southerly of the main Philippine islands. In March 1944, the Joint Chiefs gave MacArthur permission to advance north through the Admiralty and Salib Islands towards Mindanao. So the overall strategic plan at this stage was to secure a base in the strategic strategic triangle formed by the Philippines, Formosa, and the coasts of China. Such a move would cut the lines of communication between Japan's home islands and her conquered lands in the Dutch East Indies and Southeast Asia, and provide bases for air attacks and future invasions, including, of course, the ultimate assault of Japan itself. After much debate, the Joint Chiefs agreed on a two-pronged strategy. Nimitz would attack through the Central Pacific, while MacArthur advanced on the New Guinea-Mindanao axis in the Southwest Pacific. So I hope all of that's clear, Patrick. But all you really need to get your head around is that there are now two arrows heading towards the main islands of Japan. One is coming through the Central Pacific and one is coming up from the South and it's passing through the Philippines. Yes, it's very different, isn't it, from uh, what we know about the fighting in the European theatre in North Africa, as we've talked about in previous pods, and it's another one of your areas of expertise. It's a a very, very different experience. It sounds, in some ways, considerably worse, uh, I would say, than the European fighting. Um, And I think that's a lesson that's learned by the American commanders, isn't it, about what happens next if the Japanese are going to fight in this inch-by-inch 
Vauxhall by Vauxhall manner, what happens when you actually get to Japan? So this raises the prospect of even more bloodshed when and if they arrive on Japan itself. So this plays into the development of the atomic bomb, which we were talking about just earlier on, doesn't it, Saul? Yeah, it does. And you know, you need to see the Pacific campaign as a whole. It also needs to be tied into what's going on everywhere else, as James Holland mentioned when he was talking about the resources available for Italy. Everything is dependent on sharing out limited resources. So the Pacific, of course, demands an awful lot in terms of shipping, but also landing craft, which they're using to assault all these islands. And that means that there's not enough to go around, uh, both for the major invasion in Western Europe, which of course is D-Day, but also for Italy too. There's always this scrabbling around for resources. I've talked about the 30% that King demanded to be devoted to the Pacific. But you, if you think about it, 30% is, is one way of looking at it. But in, in terms of shipping, it was probably much more than that. And certainly in terms of warships too, when you get to 1945, the greatest uh, fleet in terms of uh, power, that's aircraft carriers, battleships, cruisers, and everything else, uh, was the US fifth fleet. And that's the greatest fleet in history. So enormous numbers of shipping resources had to be devoted to the uh, Pacific. And the reason is the distance between uh, Okinawa, which was the last island invaded by the Allies before they get to Japan proper and the US mainland was 7,000 miles. I mean, that's an enormous logistical tale to have to take care of. And therefore, shipping was actually crucial there. But the other thing to remember is psychologically fighting the Japanese. Well, they were their main enemies, certainly in an emotional sense for the for the Americans. They were determined to defeat them. Uh, and they didn't want to lose vast numbers of their soldiers uh, when they were doing it. And they realized, actually, from all this earlier fighting that the Japanese soldiers, particularly the regulars, were not going to surrender. You know, this sort of, um, this samurai warrior sense that, uh, you know, you fight to the finish and it's shameful to hand yourself over as a prisoner of war was something that absolutely was felt all the way through the Imperial Japanese Army and the Imperial Japanese Navy and Air Force too. And therefore, it is going to be a fight to the finish. And it's hardly surprising that when they realized that atomic weapons could work, that this was a shortcut to save not only American lives, but Japanese lives too. That was extraordinary. Thank you very much indeed, Saul. Uh, We're now going to move on and answer a few of your questions about this series. We've got a bit of time. So we're going to kick off with one from Alexander Martin. Alexander doesn't say where he's from. And he's going back to our episode on uh, the Battle of Monte Cassino. He says it's an obscure point, virtually never mentioned, that the German local commander, who was called von Senger und Etelin, was a lay Benedictine monk. So, of course, this is a Benedictine monastery. He goes on, this is a layman who follows the rule of St. Benedict in daily life. This reinforces the now mainstream conclusion that the Benedictine monastery from the 5th century was left unoccupied until after the Allied bombing destroyed it. An interesting speculation is whether the decision to do that was less inhibited for commanders from North European Protestant cultures, including the Americans. I think what Alexander's saying here is that um, while um, to von Senger und Etelin, this was a sacred place uh, to the Americans and the Anglo-Saxon, the Brits come from a Protestant culture. It was obviously a monastery, but it wasn't something uh, that they felt was some something of huge religious and spiritual significance that should be spared. What's your uh, understanding of that, Saul? 
Yeah, it's an interesting point. Um, I didn't realise he was a Benedictine. Uh, I myself went to a Benedictine school, Ampleforth in, in Yorkshire. So I know a little bit about the the culture of the Benedictines. They, they're considered to be the slightly more relaxed uh, monastic order when you compare them to some of the others. Um, uh, and I enjoyed very much my time at Ampleforth. But I think his broader question is, would the Allies have, have bonded if they'd been Benedictines too? I mean, probably is the answer, Patrick. Remember where we are at this stage of the war. You know, they, their feeling is that by bombing the monastery, they're going to make it harder for the Germans to defend that that uh, position. Actually, the opposite was true. But I don't think uh, religion really came into it. I mean, they would have been just as likely to have bombed a Protestant place of worship as, of course, they did when they got to Germany and we're already doing at this stage of the war. So, but I didn't realize the von Senger connection and it may well have played its part in in reducing the likelihood or the temptation for the Germans to actually have occupied the monastery before it was bombed. And that's certainly the conclusion Matthew Parker came to when he spoke on the podcast. He, he doesn't think the Germans were in there before, uh, which is, of course, something that some historians have suggested was pretty likely uh, and therefore it was a genuine military target. But I, I don't think that's the case. Okay, Michael from Ontario in Canada says we might consider doing an episode on the siege of Warsaw by that uprising. I think he says perhaps you can provide a more balanced account of the Soviets' actions. Of course, the Soviets held back while the Germans put down the uprising with, even by their standards, astonishing brutality. Well, yeah, this is a one of um, the most tragic events of the Second World War. and something I think that, again, people in the West don't really know about and understand the significance of it and the suffering that was involved. Uh, So we're definitely going to be devoting an episode to that uh, later on the year, closer to the anniversary. Now, Dean in Melbourne, Australia, uh, says, having just listened to James, that's James Holland's Anzio episode, I wonder why Truscott's claims about Clark are deemed accurate and correct just because he or others make them rather than giving appropriate weight to the contemporary evidence and to the contrary that uh, James Holland has put forward. Now, this is one of your, this is one of these kind of uh, controversies that rumbles on 80 years on. It's still, it's still got life in it, hasn't it? This particular controversy. And this is something I don't know anything about. So, so over to you. You're very much of the view uh, that Mark Clark was a wrong and publicity crazed. Uh, a not particularly effective commander, but he has his defenders, in, as in James Holland. So do you think that Dean's got a point here? I do think he does, actually, because having listened to James, uh, I didn't turn full circle and think, oh, crikey, Clark's a much better commander than I thought. But I think some of the major charges against him, uh, this one that he uh, effectively disobeyed orders because he wanted to take Rome for his own vanity and therefore lost the opportunity to destroy the German army that was retreating from Anzia. Well, James has definitely put some question marks as to whether that was really the case. Nevertheless, uh, the decision that Clark took to pivot and therefore attack Rome from the south against a very strongly held position when he could have gone round the side, as it were, into less heavily defended area, uh, I think, well, James explains away by saying he was lucky to get through there and luck played its part, but it wasn't, it wasn't a sensible decision in my view. So I'm still not convinced about 
Clark. I mean, I think temperamentally, one of the reasons he's got so many detractors is because he was such a difficult character. But so was Montgomery. Um, and he was a pretty effective commander. Not perfect. Uh, I don't think Clark's in that rank. And I don't think James would say he he is either. What James wants to do is kind of redress the balance, having looked into all the detail and overturn some of the slurs on Clark that have been made ever since. But in my view, that still doesn't place Clark as a particularly effective commander. Um, you know, has he been too harshly treated by history? Probably. And that's partly down to his temperament. And as I say, I feel the same way about Montgomery. But does it make me think, uh, you know, he was making all the right calls? There are too many examples, I'm afraid, from the start of, of the Italian campaign where his senior commanders are heavily critical of him. And that is usually, in my view, having studied thousands of campaigns, a bit of a red flag. Okay, moving on to Victor. He writes, I've listened on and off to the Battleground podcast for some time now, or at least whenever I've had time for it. But the 1944 edition has got me absolutely hooked. And I find myself having to do a detour to work to fit it into my schedule. Well, that's all great to hear, Victor. I love that. Uh, absolutely love it. And the guests you've got on. As a Danish chap who lived in Berlin for eight and a half years, I'm used to walking the steps of history. And your podcast about Arthur Harris and the Battle of Berlin really has had me looking at the wide boulevards of this multifaceted city. Keep it up and please continue into 1945 next year. P.S. Stop having so many brilliant guests. I always end up wanting to buy their books and I frankly haven't got the money for it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, interesting about Berlin. The first time I went to Berlin, I was surprised at how well they'd disguised the damage done to it by the uh, RAF and the USAAF uh, with the uh, bombings of 43, 44 and 45 so, you know, you actually have to use your imagination to imagine just how devastating all that destruction was. Not so in other German cities where even, you know, many years after the war, you could still get a, a sense of just how they'd been sort of gutted, really, by usually the Bomber Command's efforts. So you do get this phenomenon of, of um, approaching a, a kind of middle-sized German city and uh, around the outskirts... Uh, you've got these sort of nice old uh, Jugendstil, as they call it, villas, you know, these sort of timbered villas, uh, rather lovely. Uh, and then you get to the centre and you've got this sort of modern brutalist architecture. And, of course, it dawns on you very quickly that the reason for that is that the centre of the town or city was pretty much obliterated in the bombing campaign. Now, Phil is asking us what topics you guys are going to come up with in your 44 series. He says, personally, I'm hoping for a great escape episode as it was one of my favorite films growing up. And I think that goes for quite a lot of us to <laughs> keep up the good work. He says, well, we are going to do a great escape episode, which uh, Saul will tell you something about. But yeah, we've got to sort of schedule, like we say, we're kind of loosely pinning it to the chronology of events as the year progresses. But we're, we're going to try and cover as many incidents as possible, also themes and personalities. So to be honest, we haven't actually got the episode list pinned down yet, but we'll be flagging them up at the end of each episode, what's in the pipeline. So we hope that will give you a steer, Phil. But Saul, over to you on um, on The Great Escape. Yeah, before I get on to The Great Escape, I mean, more generally, um, we should say that all the key events, of course, of 44 are going to be covered. But we, we, you know, we as we've already done, we're ranging pretty broadly. I mean, there's going to be Burma in there. There's going to be more on the Pacific. We're going to have the Far East. Richard Overy is coming to talk on the podcast. 
shortly about Bagration, the great uh, offensive in the summer of 1944. The end. We've already done the end of the Leningrad campaign, of course. Lots and lots of other themes we'll be dealing with. Prisoners of war and the Great Escape's got to be in there, hasn't it? So that's. Uh, I think it was March 1944, wasn't it, Patrick? And this was an RAF camp. So it's a, a story you'll know pretty well. But I think the person we're going to get to come on. I haven't actually pinned him down yet. Is going to be Guy Walters, who wrote a very good book about this recently. I think it was called The Real Great Escape. Uh, and so we're, we're getting him on to talk about that because it's a great story. All right. So Peter from London, as someone with Finnish ancestry, I've always been fascinated by the role Finland played during World War II. Listening to the excellent Leningrad episode, I was reminded about the role the Finns played in the siege. I always felt uncomfortable with Finland's partnership with Nazi Germany, but my Finnish relatives always reminded me of the Winter War and presented the Finnish involvement as revenge for that earlier conflict. Eventually, the Finns signed a peace deal with the Soviets in 1944, and then the Lapland War started as the Finns pushed the Germans out of Finland, and the Germans followed a scorched earth policy. I'd love you guys to cover this relatively unknown part of the second world war in a future 44 episode well it's absolutely fascinating isn't it the the finland's uh, role in the second world war patrick i mean if we think back to the beginning churchill's pretty <laughs> determined to send british troops to help the Finns defend against the Soviets. And of course, just a year later, we're allied to the Soviets. So it, it just shows you that, you know, depending on your geographical position, you had to sort of take your allies and enemies as you found them, so to speak. And so, therefore, was it any wonder that the Finns, in, in an attempt to recover ground lost to the Soviets, were prepared to ally themselves with the Germans without quite realizing the pact with the devil they were getting themselves into? But ultimately, as Peter points out, they did take on not only the Soviets, but also the Germans. Germans. And let's not forget Finland's unbelievably heroic defense of its territory in 1940, which uh, gave the Soviet Union a serious bloody nose and probably suggested to the Germans that the uh, Soviet armed forces weren't up to much. So it's a great story. We, we would love to cover it if we can. So we'll definitely bear that in mind, Peter. Thanks so much for the question. Yes, it was definitely the case that the uh, the German generals looked at what the Finns had done to the Soviets, and that did embolden them. Uh, well, they'd already got this; they were already planning the invasion, but it made them think that it was going to go um, much more easily than it turned out to. I mean, the, you've got to, as you say, just look at where Finland is geographically. It's got these big carnivorous neighbors, and it, of course, its first duty is is to itself and so you know inevitably um they're gonna have to get into these devil's alliances i would say in the case of the siege of leningrad that even though they did sort of block off the northern side they made it clear that they weren't going to take a part in any sort of massive assault on the city itself so i think they restricted themselves really to to uh, sort of blocking operations i think they did a bit of shelling or something so i think the appalling sufferings of the population of Leningrad were very much the work of the Germans rather than the Finns in this case. Okay, that's all we have time for. Do join us on Friday for our usual episode, giving you the latest news from Ukraine and answering listeners' questions. And also next week when we'll be continuing our Battleground 44 series. Goodbye. Goodbye.